This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host here with me is Wharton Fine Professor and Senior Economist to WisdomTree, Jeremy Siegel. Please note our discussion is not tied to the offer of any investment products, and I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor, what an interesting morning to be doing this show. We got yes. the jobs report, big numbers. Uh, let's get your take on the immediate reaction. Yeah, well, what has been our theme for the last two months? This economy is strong. Um, Despite everyone saying, oh, it's weakening, 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 it is strong. Is it too strong? Well, I think this is a good report in the sense that hourly earnings were below expectations. Um, um, The unemployment uh, rate actually, instead of dropping one-tenth, is three-eight. It gives you a little bit of slack. Uh, into the economy. People are entering into the labor force. This is exactly what you want. Um, And uh, yes, yields jump because there's worry, oh my God, the Fed is going to stay, you know, stronger for longer and we get an initial drop. But I think that all this strength without increasing inflation is actually plays into corporate earnings in a positive way. And uh, we're going to be getting corporate earnings next two weeks, uh, starting to get them. And, um, you know, when we have the market at 16 and a half times next year's earnings on the S&P X tech, and I'm taking into account the drop this morning in the S&P um, uh, X tech, we're probably at 13 to 14. I don't care if there's a recession. <laughs> That's mild. Uh, these are great values. These are great long-term values for equity holders. Um, internationally, um, you know, I think Europe is now 10 to 11. Um, and, uh, you know, th- this this is almost to levels where we're above 6% on real returns going forward. I used to say we're, you know, at 5.5, 5, 5.4, Going down to now, we're, we're 6 Six two real returns going forward. Yes, I know the the tips is two three two four. Still does not compete. So um, yes, we've had a readjustment in real rate, a readjustment of what we think is the neutral real rate. But it's a company with a strong economy. I don't think you know that this should be a shocker. By the way, the um, household report uh, did not show as big an increase in employment. Um, you know, it's a question of which one we should look at, but there's no strength, uh, no question about the strength here. So again, um, strong report. Now, my feeling is they're not going to move on November 1st. Too many uncertainties. Another government shutdown two weeks after that uh, is not going to be resolved. Will the auto start, uh, you know, be resolved? Certainly, we're going to look at PPI and CPI. How do they come out? But I even think a tenth over expectation is not enough. Maybe two, three tenths over expectation might push them uh, with continued strength uh, that is very strong. But my feeling is, is the long end and the increase of 50 basis points in the long end and in real rates, too, has done a lot of the work for the for the for the, the Fed. Remember, what's really going to be hurt is the, the housing market. I mean, we now have. Basically, 30-year fix at eight. And um, wow, given um, you know that housing prices are maintaining, now they may start tumbling as a result of this. We do see apartments tumbling. We do see REITs tumbling. We don't see owner-occupied homes tumbling yet, but we get delayed reaction on that. But uh, you know, at an 8% mortgage rate, um, uncertainty going forward. My feeling is Powell want to hold another uh, meeting uh, 
And then if it continues to play out on December, he will hike. But uh, at this particular point, uh, my feeling is still no hike in November. We're at a tight monetary policy, but mostly because the economy is strong. But we have labor force participation that is keeping inflation down. And we have the dynamics of the shelter and its lag actually giving us downward pressure on official CPI data going over the next six months. Yeah, you had a big drop in oil this week also. That, that's got to be good for this headline inflation. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and, and partly it's, it's recession fears with this big jump in rates and the strength of the dollar. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing that. Oh, my God. You know, the, the Fed has tipped us over. I'm not sure they've tipped us over. They've got to be very alert. There's a lot of two-sided risks here. And um, I think the Fed is beginning to, to feel, you know, that we got to keep on looking. And, you know, we've been saying, look at jobless claims again, very strong yesterday. Um, you know, it wasn't surprising that we're going to have a strong report. I think expected this strong in terms of, of uh, you know, total labor being higher. But we're going into the fourth quarter with a very, very, very strong report. Housing is going to be a downturn, but everything else is is going well. And I think earnings are basically going to match expectations. And I think that, uh, you know, although there'll be some warnings and guidance, we'll take a look at whether guidance for 2024 is down or up. At this particular point, 2024 is holding in. If 2024 holds in 16 and a half, 17 times earnings, is historically in these times an excellent time to to be a long-term equity holder. Our, our discussion today on the show, we're going to have uh, one of the return guests that was on with us this summer, uh, focusing on AI and productivity. There's been a huge year for productivity. Any sense of how you think that'll evolve next year as we go through a, a, all this new technology change? You see it continuing those trends. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, that's why I think real rates are up. And I think rates are up. I, I think the AI situation could accelerate, you know, productivity growth from, you know, well, very negative last year, but a long-term average uh, of the last five years of something like 0.5, up to one and a half, maybe even 2%. Um, if we can really, and, and you know, uh, get AI to replace some of the work that others do and they find work elsewhere, keeping wages down. Um, but the productivity growth, don't forget what real rates are tied to is real growth, not not that growth of the labor force, not you know anything, real GDP growth. That looks to be stronger going to 2024 and maybe 2025, we will see. Um, and I think that's the story of of higher higher interest rates, as well as the fact that our, you know people are saying, "Oh my goodness, you know the you know again we we talked about this. The bonds are not serving to be the hedge against equities uh, losses that they once did. People are going to have to say, are they going to be satisfied with therefore holding uh, bonds at the same level? That's always in the background there with the correlation between stocks and bonds rising. But I think the big story is uh, an upward growth of, of, of real rates. And I think the Fed is going to start increasing its neutral rate from 0.5% uh, above uh, the, the inflation rate to 1.5% above the inflation Well, a lot of big changes there. And it's a big morning with good news. We're going to have a, a lot of uh, interesting discussion on all these trends here for the rest of the conversation. Professor, thanks for kicking us off to start the show. Thank you very much, Jeremy. See you next week. Have, look at those uh, inflation pictures both on uh, Wednesday and Thursday. Very good. Have a good one. All right. We are live here on Wharton's campus. We've got, uh, we mentioned a return guest, Daniel Rock, who's a professor here at Wharton, uh, focused on the operations information decision, sort of tech-oriented AI story. Daniel, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks Great for, to be here. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on campus. We have one of your friends, Anton Kornek, who's professor of economics at the University of Virginia, the Darden School, also does a lot of research for the NBER. Uh, Anton, welcome to Behind the Markets. Great to be on air with you. Well, I'm going to start with Daniel, who's sitting next to me uh, in the studio. 
Um, you know, we, we, when we had you in August, we talked a little bit about rates and I, I, I didn't give your name on Twitter uh, at the time, <laughs> but we, we had a hot take that that you thought rates should be much higher. And, and when, when I tweeted this out, it was a Friday afternoon. I, I said, going into the weekend, I'm pondering this story that the tenure could get to 6%. At the day, it was 425. Today, as we're, we're, we're here live, it's 475. So it's going your direction, 6%. Give us the case. Is it really going to 6%? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I... I, I should say, you know, I'm a two-handed economist, so I, you know, there's always a an other the other hand uh, argument. But um, I was looking at uh, short-term rates versus long-term rates and thinking, while wow, the long end of the curve really is pricing in what looks to be a recession, um, anticipated rate cuts, and so on. But I thought, well, what if we see continued strength, um, which is reasonable, right? Maybe even more inflation. Uh, I don't think. People have quite thought, what do I need to get compensated to hold a, a tenure if uh, if rates just stay up for a longer period of time? So I thought, yeah, it's totally reasonable. I mean, AI is one of the things that could go into that, uh, as Professor Siegel was talking about, uh, enhancing productivity growth. Um, but I thought, yeah, I don't really want to buy a tenure right now. So I'm not the marginal buyer at the moment, right? But, uh, you know, we've seen... You know, Jamie Dimon come out, say that rates could go as high as 7%. And I thought, yeah, there's there's just a risk to the downside for bonds. Um, so, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily over. It could keep going. Uh, maybe this is just the sort of the steepener we were, or bear steepener we we're kind of thinking about. But yeah, I, I think term premium is probably going to return to the market. Now, I should say I'm not a, you know, a financial economist. I'm just, uh, you know, a recovering trader thinks about some of these things but um to me it seems like uh like rates could very much stay up if productivity growth and strengthening the economy kind of maintains its current pace hey we're going to get into some of those issues uh anton any any market views from the economy what you're seeing the the reaction in the bond market today and anything on what, what daniel just said about where he sees six percent do you, do you think six percent is possible well possible for sure um i would say for the past year, really, uh, year and a half, I think uh, the main driving force uh, for monetary policy has been reining in excessive demand. But now we don't want to interpret too much into uh, the reports today. But just the numbers seem to support more and more the view that this is really a fundamentally strong economy. This is essentially positive supply, not excess demand. And that means, first, we may not have to see a recession. And secondly, that um, yeah, rates can stay high without choking off growth and um, maybe higher even, right? So this positive supply shift that you're talking about, what is this, what's driving that? Is this all about our, tech, our, our discussion today, all about technology and AI? Or is there other supply factors here that you're, you're seeing? Yeah, I should say... Um, I would be surprised if it was all technology, because uh, we know from the past that technological changes take time filtering through the economy. But maybe we are already seeing a little bit of it. And I think we are still seeing uh, the economy recovering from COVID. Uh, I think for the first time, employment, uh, for example, in hospitality is back to where it was before COVID. And... Um, you know, this is kind of a healthy recovery uh, that is finally maturing. Yeah, I agree with that. So, Daniel, when we we when you, we had you on, we talked about who should we get to talk about AI trends. Uh, <laughs> Anton was your first guest. Any introductions that you would make on Anton generally before we get into some more of the, the issues? Uh, just to say Anton's one of the people uh, I look to uh, to expand my thinking about how, you know, AI might evolve. And, you know, I think every paper he writes is a must read. That's a strong statement, strong endorsement, um, Anton. So one I'm of the the pieces. Really honored to hear that. You know, one of the pieces was on productivity and the long term trends in productivity, where they have been recently. And this is like the big question. You know, we've been saying shorthand. We last year was a disaster for productivity, and and this year we're hiring half as many workers, but maybe twice as much output. So the big question is for next year, what's possible? But let's talk the long term. You, your paper talked a little bit about some of the historical. Maybe walk us through what did you see in the, in, in the history, in the 70s, what changed? 
uh, and where you see things going? Yeah, if we look at productivity growth in the U.S., then from essentially right after World War II until the mid-70s, uh, we did have really healthy growth in total factor productivity, more than 2%. And then from the mid-70s until the mid-90s, uh, we really had a productivity slump. We were like down to half a percent, essentially. We had one decade starting in the mid-90s, that was like uh, what people call the internet boom, but honestly, it was really the computerization of the economy. And then since 2005 until essentially last year, we were back down to half a percent of productivity growth. And um, I think the recent advances in AI, they are really going to push us back to a much higher trajectory than what we have seen for the past two decades. And, you know, I should say, uh, Daniel mentioned I have pretty aggressive views on this, so um, which are in part informed, I should say, by his papers, because he has done really excellent work on this. Uh, and yeah, if we just use our current, let's say, generative AI systems, I think we'll easily be back to where we were in the late 1990s during the internet boom. But we also know that uh, these AI systems are on like a turbocharged growth trajectory. Uh, we are expecting Google DeepMind to release uh, their latest system, Gemini, uh, in the next couple of weeks. And yeah, we don't even know yet what that will be able to do. Uh, that may give us an even further boost. And right now we are on this tremendous growth trajectory where essentially the amount of computing power going into our cutting edge systems is doubling every six months. So it means we all know the power of exponential growth. Uh, it means it's quadrupling every year. It's growing by a factor of 1000 every five years. And we have no idea yet what these systems are going to be capable of in a year from now, two years, five years from now. If I if I if I try to pinpoint you to a single number, next ten years, average productivity growth, um, how much better? I mean, it's been like one percent for the last decade. You know, it's been two percent. Are we going to get back to two? We're going to get back higher than two? If if I force you to make one single point number, so my guess would be certainly higher than two. Higher than two, and frankly. I don't even know where to put the ceiling. Um, it all depends on how fast these systems are going to evolve. But I personally, I could imagine scenarios in which we are going to be much greater than 2% uh, productivity growth. Dana, do you want to put an estimate? Uh, I would be a little bit more conservative than that. Um, I would be very excited to see an additional, you know, one and a half percent productivity growth. I think that would be like a fabulous outcome. Um, and, you know, half a percent to one and a half percent is kind of roughly, you know, what I think is is probable, just given all the different bottlenecks that you could see. Though, you know, there are there's there's sort of a heavy tail here, right? Like there's there's a chance that we get a completely transformative advance in the next few years. If you had asked me like even three years ago, would I have anticipated the large language model um improvements that we see today I, I don't i would have said you're nuts like there's no way right. that ai can do those things so um and we're looking at this stuff all the time so um it's even surprised yeah. you who looks at it every day yeah yeah i was i was stunned um the, the capabilities of these models are just off the charts um now one thing i will point out and this is something that i think um is a misconception you rightfully pointed it out on on twitter right like um, people sort of think this stuff is deflationary by default, uh, that you're going to automate work, drive costs down. But, um, you know, productivity improvements tend to be sort of bullish for, you know, factor demand of all types. So um, we could see, depending on the new products that get invented, the, the new sorts of things that people create, we could see massive demand for capital as people try to change their businesses to, to meet the new technology. Anton, you, one of your pieces said as much as 80% of the workforce is uh, could get impacted by these new technologies. Um, tell, tell us if there's people who benefit, some of the examples you used in, in the piece of, of who's getting how much benefit uh, from these new, new models. 
Yeah, right now it's mostly benefits, but I should say there is also kind of a downside that some jobs are going to be displaced by these uh, technologies. But at the moment, I would say anybody who is a cognitive worker, any white collar worker, and, uh, you know, that includes uh, you and me, uh, we can already reap productivity benefits from these technologies. Uh, I recently uh, published a paper uh, on how to use these tools for economic research, just because I wanted to spec out for myself what I can do with these tools. And honestly, I was amazed at how much they can already automate uh, in terms of the work tasks that I as an economist would engage in uh, on a routine basis. So I think I personally, I'm at least 20% more productive using these things. And, you know, if you multiply that by the number of um, white collar workers throughout our economy, you can easily get to really big productivity gains. And this is only using the tools of 2023, or I should say of the first half of 2023, not the AI tools that we are going to see later this year and next year and so on. Yeah, I liked your your point on that coders could be twice as effective uh, potentially using it, and, and even writers can be twice as effective. You think about sort of the leveling of the playing field, and I think this was an interesting stat you had about call centers where, you know, 14% on average, but 30% for the least experienced workers. We talk about inequality where there's this growing gap between the haves and the have-nots, and the haves keep making more and more. Now, the pandemic is one where there was so much supply constraints, it actually seemed like there was some gap between the wage growth was fastest for the for the lower side. But is this is this going to be one of those things that, as, as you guys think through this, will this bring up the the inequality gap or is it going to create more what's what's your sense um well so there's been five or six studies in different contexts here in the er in the early goings we've seen uh for call center workers for uh coding for writing uh for consultants um anton uh fill in if i'm missing any of these but in pretty much all of these examples uh, economists yeah um in all of these cases uh the folks who were kind of new to the job didn't really know um, how to perform at the highest levels. Uh, models helped them do much better. Um, whereas people at the top of their game, um, they had less to learn from the model. So from that sense, you know, early on, this is great news. You're you're lowering the barrier to entry for a lot of these tasks. I don't know if that'll hold up long term. Um, there's something I like to call the bananas problem with these, where like say call center workers, right? You learn from the best employees how to teach the the newest employees or the folks who haven't quite learned the best practices. Um, but if everyone starts behaving like your top performing uh, employees right off the bat, then there's like a monoculture in how they do things. So you gotta, if you're a manager, you gotta think about that pretty carefully. Um, we'll see long-term, I think uh, knowledge workers tend to be like the top end knowledge workers like Anton uh, with, you know, getting 20% more productive. Um, scary. Those, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's really like, it's a terrifying thought to some extent. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, those people tend to find ways to make themselves uh, even better. Um, you know, the top programmers might be really good. So I think longer term, once you get more exploration and new modes of working, we might see inequality expand again, but at least the early evidence is, is kind of positive. On this productivity question, there's been there was always a, a phrase you've seen productivity everywhere, but in the official statistics, there's like some quip mm, on that. Solo. Yeah, and and uh, you know you had that a, a similar statement in your piece about official stats will only partially capture the boost because it is difficult to measure output. I mean, we also think about like Siegel's talked about this a lot. It's like the phone. You know, how many things did the phone right. replace that you used to get? But now it's all just on your one device. Um, but as how much of that has been going on in the one percent we've had historically? Do you, are we been just undercounting it? Do you think uh, any sense in that question? Uh, yeah, I think there's two things going on here. So f first, we are probably undercounting it 
because it's very hard to measure the output of cognitive, cognitive workers in official statistics. So let's say I can feel that I'm 20% more productive, but I have yet to convince my university to pay me 20% more. <laughs> and until that happens, it won't show up in productivity statistics. And the same is true for lots of cognitive workers. Your real output's um, going up. <laughs> but but I'll also it. say that um, there are a couple of factors why this time uh, the technology may roll out a lot faster uh, than with computers in the 1990s. And one reason is that we don't need to buy any new hardware. We can just use our existing computers to use these generative AI tools. A second reason is we don't really need to learn anything new. We can just interact with these tools in natural language and we all know how to speak. And then a third factor is that they are already being integrated into Office software. Microsoft, Google and so on are doing this. And that means that even if you don't actively care to sign up for it, these tools are going to be at your fingertips uh, in the very near future. As you think about, Daniel, from your old trading hat background <laughs> and thinking about the investment implications of some of this, is do the gains get concentrated in the big, as, as Anton was just saying, like you got Microsoft, you got this year's performances led by the Magnificent Seven and, and in the chips side, all NVIDIA all the time. Is this going to become a broader story or is it going to be big gains to the big winners at, for, for, for as far as we can see? Well, I do think we'll get broad-based productivity growth from these tools, um, and it won't be that every company's you know core business value proposition is that they use uh, AI in some sense. It's it's you know there's not that many companies out there that would say we use the internet, um, and that that's why we we're use different. Email, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, Nvidia is interesting because it seems like their market position is very hard to dislodge right now. Their their software, their chips, everything is like very well integrated, and they build a better mousetrap, really. Um, so you know they have a big target on their backs, and a lot of people are are coming for them. But um, you know, so far nobody's really succeeded. So that's you know that's an interesting one to watch over time. Um, I think right now, other than that. Talent and data are the real bottlenecks. The the inputs are hard to find here, right? Like there's only a few thousand people around the world who are really excellent at training these models. Um, and then on the data side, uh, there's a few data sets that are super helpful for, for training large language models or images. We're going to see like uh, enormous copyright battles in the, the coming years. Um, so that's another interesting thing to watch, thinking about who owns uh, these data assets and who employs the the best people for for building these models. Anton, go ahead. Yeah, I just came out with a report on the market concentration implications of foundation models, which are essentially these models powering chat, GPT, and so on. And I think since it takes so much investment to build these cutting edge models. So let's say one training run for GPT-4 is estimated to have cost like a hundred million. And not everybody can afford that in their basement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't have that lying around? I wouldn't tell people if I did. <laughs> hundred million. Um, yeah, there's this natural tendency for monopoly. And I think the real frontier models the very best models, uh, they will be produced just by a very small number of players like OpenAI, Google DeepMind, Anthropic, maybe if they're willing to spend uh, the amount needed, Meta. Um, but there's not going to be a competitive market in this field. Yeah, long term, I'd agree. There's some new, uh, you know, there's lots of startups entering, though, as well, um, that are developing new things pretty quickly. And the techniques around smaller scale models um, are improving. Also, I'll add, you know, on the other side, to support Anton's point, um, especially in consumer apps, it's not so much the training costs that really bite, but the inference costs, like running people, uh, their prompts, running them through the model. When you think about like, okay, so OpenAI spends whatever it is, you know, umpteen million dollars to to train the model, but then they have millions of people on there every day running the model, that that racks up very quickly. Um, 
So if you're doing a consumer app and you're deploying to the full market and you're successful, you may be a victim of your own success. The data center cost, the data storage, this totally. is where the chips, this is where it comes back to NVIDIA and these other data centers that they need the processing power. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Maybe just share your view of what, what's happening. Do we have enough chips? What, what are the key issues around the chip production and the compute capacity? Yeah, so at the moment, the shortage of chips, or we should really say, as economists, the value of chips, because we know when there is an imbalance in demand and supply, it just pushes up the price. That's one of the main bottlenecks in advancing these frontier AI models. And at the moment, NVIDIA is by far the leader in this field. And uh, essentially, their uh, inability of really scaling up production fast is what's holding back everything else in the field. And I guess it's reflected in the record profits uh, that they are reporting and in the skyrocketing price uh, of their stock. Um, so we are, we are at the point where if you want to hire uh, one of the uh, top graduates from computer science programs, one of the first questions that they ask you is how much computing power they'll get assigned. So how much access they're going to have to these cutting-edge chips. So this is really one of the main factors uh, in AI development nowadays. It, is, it, is it a little bit like OPEC with oil, where they're trying to constrain the supply to push up the price? Can they actually move it? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it, I, I've done some research on NVIDIA that we've talked about how it's one of the most, the most expensive stock in the S&P. Once it gets to these levels, it's become very tough to outperform from these from these levels. And uh, even after their blowout earnings, you see it is below where it traded, uh, $50 below where it traded after hours. But are, can they do more? Or, or, or who's the most likely to supply these added chips, if you had to guess? Like, where's the next most likely supply to come from? So I think um, they couldn't really supply more in the short term. I don't think they are just artificially restricting the supply, uh, but they are essentially producing full steam. And it just takes time because it's incredibly complicated to produce these advanced chips. I think we have to increasingly view those very advanced computer chips as like mini brains that are being built, uh, <laughs> not out of, you know, soft tissue like our brains, but out of silicon and so on. And creating them is really complicated and it takes its time. There is a number of other companies along the supply chain that are really critical for this. Uh, but yeah, NVIDIA itself is probably the strongest player in the whole supply chain. And yeah, who are the main competitors? So they're not quite where NVIDIA is, and that's why they have this dominant position. Uh, but I would say from my perspective, um, Google is perhaps the second one in line uh, because they have uh, created their own in-house chips uh, and they're using those to train and run their own AI systems. It feels like that's going to be the trend, like the big players, again, will they have the money, they can spend it, you got Google, it feels like Apple will get there eventually. Um, it, it, it feels like more and more are going to, it's like you can't see the competition for NVIDIA today, but over the next five years, there'll be more competition. Yeah, that's likely. I mean, the, the profit margins are really wide. It's just, it's hard. Um, I was talking to a, an expert in this field, and he was saying that the... Um, the integration of the software and the hardware, uh, it's its just super difficult to get that right in a way that um, performs as well. And from one perspective, I mean, NVIDIA is expanding supply as quickly as you can. I mean, look at how the quality of the chips is improving. Um, every new iteration is much better than the last, and that's driven by their customers and demand. Um, so, um, you know, the older stuff is available. It's just not useful for what people want, want to build. Now, there's some of these technologists have been suggesting we slow down. So you have this natural slowdown. There's only so many chips that can go around. But do you, any comments on the, the work around we need to see how all this AI is going to play out? We got to slow down some of the development. There's a, a really interesting paper on this. Probably my, my favorite reference on it uh, the is Asimoglu and Lensman, um, you know, talking about 
if you if you're worried about a technology having potentially terrible effects, but you haven't learned whether that's the case or not, you may want to sort of optimally slow down uh, the development. Um, you know, their their proposed mechanisms are mostly government based, but uh, perhaps this NVIDIA, if if you think that slowing down is a good idea, perhaps an NVIDIA uh, high price uh, for cutting edge GPUs uh, sort of naturally slows down uh, development in the same way. So um, I'm, I'm not sure there's anything that makes this a default, but the market's kind of handled the problem uh, potentially. I would say that in an ideal world, maybe it would be desirable to slow things down a little bit because we don't know what all the risks from these frontier AI systems are going to be yet. But in practice, we are in a very competitive environment, yeah. and frankly, I just can't see it happen. So the discussion is mostly theoretical for me. I think what we do need to do, um, and I laid this out with a, a large group of co-authors in a paper called Frontier AI Regulation this summer, is we do first want uh, our governments to have a better understanding of what's being developed. So we want probably some sort of monitoring regime. Uh, and eventually, as these systems become more capable and also potentially more dangerous, then we probably do want to have regulation on them. Yeah, there was a bunch of people, Elon included, going to Washington to talk with Washington about those regulations. It'll be interesting to see what comes from all that. That stuff doesn't happen overnight. If, if I go back to this question of where will the competition come from, uh, you think about just not the U.S., but around the world. Certainly there's China. Certainly Japan mm -hmm. has been one of those sort of leading parts of, let's say, robotics is a, is an element of the story in in automation and and in some ways of where where AI plays a role. Anything on the advances in robotics that you see in, in Japan's role in, in all this technology? Uh, yeah, so I would say one of the things that I found a bit surprising, uh, basically as surprising as uh, the chat GPT moment itself, was that if you hook up these foundation models with robots, you see really significant increases in capabilities. So that means now that we have made all these breakthroughs on the software side and foundation models, we are also seeing, and for now only in the labs, that the robots are becoming significantly more capable. And I expect that within the next couple of years, we will see a lot of automation from basically that boost to robotics. Yeah, and it unlocks new business models as well, like... Uh... In the past, right, you'd have to buy a robot that very specifically sorted tomatoes by, I don't know, color or something like like that, right? Um, but with large language models embedded or, you know, just foundation models generally embedded within uh, robotics, you can make general purpose robots. So you don't have to outright buy the machine. And then if your business goes under a well, you can rent the machine from a company that makes general purpose robots. And if you don't want it anymore, then you stop paying, you know, to rent them and they can rent them out to someone else uh, to do something different. So um, that might be the business model. Viable uh, business models might be one of the, the blockers that goes away uh, as these new technologies get developed. I brought up Japan because I think Japan's a leader in robotics, but it's, it's also one of the leading car manufacturers. Also, mm -hmm. right now we have the United Auto Workers strike and you got all sorts of labor negotiation with strikes now. Is is this going to be? Is this one of the reasons why the companies are trying to stay strong? Is that there's just so much better technology? Or you think they they these strikes uh, they're going to find uh, any comments on the strikes and 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 the interaction with these technologies? In, in the, at the moment, we have a very tight labor market, and I think um, wages have not quite kept up with inflation uh, in the years after COVID. So I think. In some ways, unions are demanding uh, what is due to workers. Um, but what I see on the horizon is not really quite as good for labor. And um, if these systems become much more powerful as quickly as I expect, then I think that's going to be on balance negative for labor. And, and I think we can no longer rule out 
that there's going to be really transformative shifts to labor demand, not just like what we have seen for the past 200 years during the Industrial Revolution, that some jobs get replaced and new jobs get created, but that we really have systems that can perform essentially a broad range, if not all of what human labor does. And that would be really <laughs> detrimental for the Well, that's a big statement. And, and that goes to your, one of your pieces on what we would, and you outlined a few different scenarios of how this technology can, um, you know, since the industrial level, you talk about how technology we've, 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 there's this slope between output and wages that we've basically had this technology neutral slope that we're getting more wages for all the new technologies. But that's not the guarantee. And, and maybe talk through some of the dynamics where you might not have that, um, where technology doesn't be neutral, but actually hurts wages uh, or they don't participate as, as fast as technology. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. For basically the past 200 years, on average, output and wages have kind of evolved in parallel. And that means on average, technological growth has benefited all. But if you look at uh, like more the details over the past couple decades, we can already see that certain sectors of workers have been left behind. So, for example, for the past four decades, if you were a male uh, without a high school degree, uh, your real earnings adjusted for inflation have actually gone down. So it means there is a whole generation of workers uh, that are worse off than their parents. And we have already seen all the political discontent that that gives rise to. And I think it's just a harbinger of what may happen eventually to all of us if technology advances to the point where it can do everything that we are doing. And yeah. as you already hinted at, I don't think we can rule that out anymore. And, you know, I'm talking to uh, computer scientists uh, and AI pioneers uh, who are studying this and who are trying to extrapolate. And I think the main view here is that things have become incredibly uncertain. Um, but, you know, even the pioneers, so for example, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, who invented deep learning, uh, he said earlier this year that he has changed his views on this and that he now thinks that machines may actually be able to become more intelligent than humans. And when people ask him for a timeline, he said, well, I really don't know when there is a lot of uncertainty, but it could be anywhere between five to 20 years from now. It's not far. And like, <laughs> that's really aggressive, right? Well, he also said that we should stop training radiologists in 2016, and uh, demand for radiologists has only gone up since then. So, uh, you know, I, I think the core thing and what you're saying is absolutely right. We have to plan for different scenarios, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And there's, you know, there's scenarios where this doesn't do all that much as well. For whatever reason, there's bottlenecks and problems. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, you know, I don't think that all the jobs are going away, but, you know, I think if I were uh, running a union, for example, I'd be thinking very carefully about uh, employer retraining programs, um, how uh, the, you know, employers and unions can work together to make sure that, you know, people aren't being treated like machines in their jobs so that when something shows up and it annihilates a specific task, you don't have workers just doing one task. They have a variety of tasks where they could in the short run shuttle into one of those uh, and longer term accumulate some, you know, additional human capital to move out of that role. So, you know, job design and job quality is kind of the thing that, you know, I think is pretty, you know, radically understudied compared to job quantity and stuff like that. So, you know, you think about how do uh, corporate ladders work when you come in, if all the work you would have done uh, to get the intuition and the knowledge, the tacit knowledge you need to do your job at a senior level if much of that is exposed to machines and the senior people are just doing it on their own, you know, then we've kind of pulled the ladder up on a lot of uh, younger workers. That could be bad as well. So um, we, we should pay more attention to job quality, career paths, that sort of stuff. If we, I think in the modal scenario, and then of course, you know, Anton's pointing out there's, there is the, 
you know, job apocalypse scenario, uh, possibly. But uh, in that scenario, maybe we're all rich and we have a distribution problem instead of a, well, a work. As Chad Jones said, I'd like, you know, at the conference, like, I'd like to remind people that work is generally not considered something people always want to do. Um, so. They like to have leisure. They like to yeah, exactly. spend time not working. Um, so, Anton, t- t- you, there there is a story of of what the, what we should do as a as a policy public policy what the what the you know we're going into election season now as you think about the implications politically what what would if you were advising the president what policies would you be suggesting for how do we think about the most important things to be be working on right now yeah so first i i want to say i do very much agree with daniel that uh, there is also the scenario that the world is still going to be, you know, wealthier and more productive, but pretty much the same in 20 years from now. And I would put some positive weights on all these possibilities, given all this uncertainty. So I think what we really need is we need some scenario planning and we need policies that are robust and that work in all of these scenarios. So, um, if labor markets are really disrupted significantly, and you know we don't need human level intelligence for that, we just need fast progress, uh, then I think we are gonna have a big distribution problem. If you think about it, in some ways, it's a strange uh, way that our society distributes income. And it's been only the past 200 years that we do it this way. Uh, But right now, labor markets are our main mechanism of distributing all the surplus that society creates across people. It didn't used to be that way before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, We've had all kinds of systems of income distribution. None better, (laughs) just to clarify. Those those were not great systems either. Well, I think among hunter-gatherers, if it was your tribe that distributed income and everybody was taken care of, uh, I'm sure there were tribes in which that worked relatively well. Now, obviously, in feudal societies, for example, it probably didn't work quite as well as it works today. Uh, But I just want to, you know, expand our range of thinking about how can we distribute income in, in a society, and in particular in a society that may be a lot richer than now, if these advanced AI tools really can automate a whole range of things. And we are going to have to rely less on labor markets and more on other things. So what are these other things? I think basically things like a social safety net, perhaps shared capital ownership, because that gives people a direct stake in uh, the enterprises uh, of our economy. Uh, But we'll have to move away from labor markets as the primary mechanism for income distribution. You know know what that sounded like to me when I was reading that? It's like, well, are we going to then, is the government going to try to take part of Google and Apple and Microsoft and then be able to redistribute that to everybody else? It sounds a little bit like China. It sounds like the state-owned companies, it sounds like they're, you know, they they have that model of, hey, we we have the state ownership, we could then distribute in, in some ways, but... Is it the antithesis of the U.S.? Uh, Well, I should point out that we have something called the corporate income tax right now, which essentially says (laughs) that the government takes a certain share of all profits. But we let these companies go abroad, so the Apple doesn't pay any tax anyways. I mean, no, that's facetious. (laughs) But they they move abroad to these low-tax headquarters, so they have to do more than the corporate income tax to get some of these tech companies. Well, there are are other ways of doing it, too. I mean, like, you look at the the looming Social Security problems. um, You know, there have been proposals in the past to convert those to sort of uh, defined contribution uh, instead, where... You'd, you'd be buying companies instead um, and just making sure that people participate in the upside, um, you know, whether that's stocks or bonds. I don't know if these are good ideas. I'm just saying there's there's ways of doing it without going full state-owned enterprise uh, as, as your approach. Yeah, I don't think we want full state-owned enterprises. History kind of doesn't suggest that that's a good idea, but we probably don't want as many loopholes for parking profits overseas as we have right now. 
because that makes it really hard to raise income taxes. And, you know, one of the things when labor markets are undermined is that uh, income tax revenues are going to go down and we are going to have to rely more on these other sources. And, and capital, yeah, capital taxes. You know, you, you talk a little bit about the, the UBI, universal basic income tax. I've only really seen candidates like Andrew Yang. Have you have you? Do you know where Yang got indoctrinated on this view? Um, is there other people <laughs> who should be coming towards that in, in your world? Um, so I think right now we don't need a UBI uh, because if I look around me, labor markets are really tight and we have pretty good mechanisms of income distribution for those who are in need. And these mechanisms are much more targeted than a UBI. But what I advocate is we want policy that's robust to all the scenarios. So maybe we want something like a seed UBI, something that's really small that doesn't play a role right now. But if we suddenly experience massive disruption, policymakers could scale it up and could make sure that we don't have many losers uh, in a world where AI is suddenly creating a lot more output. It would be a pity if we have so much more and we have people who lose out at the same time. In our final one-minute answer for both of you, final two minutes, maybe a little bit less, um, what are you suggesting to your students to keep them relevant in this future AI world? Uh, well, you know, number one thing is students all going to learn how to work with uh, with large language models, with uh, mid-journey, all these things. So, like, stay up to date on what the tools are and how to use them um, and work smart, not hard. Uh, I think, you know, we have the benefit of having really, really smart students. I'm not especially worried about them uh, long term. I think they're going to do great. Um, it's just, you know, got to make a habit of lifelong learning here. And, and Anton, your final suggestions. I second Daniel's message on uh, learning how to use these tools. But I would also say don't be too much attached to your job. Make sure that you have another life uh, on the side of it. Uh, if the world really changes and if labor plays a much lower role than it does today. So that you're have prepared. fun. Be ready to have some leisure time is what Anton is saying. Um, <laughs> That's right. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to thank Daniel for coming to the studio, for introducing me to Anton. Thank our producer, Chris Tooks, on the soundboard. And uh, you can listen to us on our Behind the Market podcast every week. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 